I would like to welcome everyone to this conference on the Norwegian paradox. This conference has been held as part of the Norwegian constitutional celebrations, 200 years of the Norwegian constitution for those who are not Norwegian. Um, the idea of the conference started with this book, The Norwegian Paradox, written by Erik Ortler Eriksson and by John Erik Fossum. However, the very idea that there are non-members of the European Union, which we will also be exploring today, using Norway as a principal example, of course. That very idea is itself a paradox. The idea that non-membership can itself be a status, a political condition that requires institutional solutions is paradoxical. And we have many distinguished speakers to help us explore the paradox in the first half through the Norwegian example, in the second half bringing in um, some other cases such as Switzerland too. Uh, the first series of speakers are Eric Ordvar Eriksson, uh, who's director of ARENA of course, John Eric Fossum, also from ARENA, Espen Olsen, in fact, all of the first four speakers are from Arena. Elspin Olsen is the third speaker. And Helena Siosen is the fourth. So I'll give the floor now to Eric. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming also. It is a pleasure to be here. We are, um, we are uh, researching on the European integration usually. And uh, this is uh, the first time we have... Uh, try to do something on Norway and seeing Norway in, in relationship to the, uh, to the EU. The book that um, Chris uh, 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 mentioned, this, the Norwegian paradox, is what this is, uh, this is about and it is a, uh, a book that is edited, it's not completely written by me and Kjoneric, uh, it is uh, edited and the other, some, some of the other contributors will have the floor afterwards. Um, this is a um, part of a research project that we got in, in, uh, relation, in uh, connection with the uh, 200 old uh, celebration of the, of the uh, Norwegian constitution. It is 200 years this, uh, this uh, year and, um, and the research council had out a, a bid for research on this and we, we got uh, support for a project on, on this. And, our, and uh, the more time has gone, the more, uh, the more uh, the more good I think it was that they gave us this project because this whole celebration has been very nostalgic and looking backwards to what happened in, 19, in 1814 and, and, and afterwards and all, all the victories that Norway, Norway uh, had for popular sovereignty and democracy and um, uh, these kind of things. But the problem is what is the status of the constitution today? What is it, what is it that is, uh, uh, what is their the realities now, nowadays? Constitution says says something about who should decide, who are in, who are authorized to decide, but who is really deciding Norwegian laws today? So, so this is the the, the, the topic of the book. The paradox is in a way that the majority of Norwegian citizens voted no to EU membership in 1994, but in fact Norway is is very much a member of the union, a de facto member of the European Union. How could this be possible? So this is, in a way, what we try to explore in this uh, in this book. There was another book also that was out that we also promised to publish in the uh, when we got this money. This is a book written by me. So this is the normativity of the EU, 
normative foundation of the EU as such. So you can have a look at that too if you want to. But um, I'll draw a little bit on this when I when I when I now talk. The, we should take uh, constitutions uh, seriously, and also the Norwegian constitution. It is not just a symbol or a, or something that we uh, should <laughs> put up when there is. A, when, when so many years has passed. It was an important constitution. It, it is pretty modern and, and radical. It, was, it is, a, it is a, 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 a constitution that ensured national sovereignty and popular rule in the sense that it also, by the time came by, it was a, a, a constitution that um, legitimized popular sovereignty with the um, franchise and uh, and the parliament as uh, as main uh, main uh, institution here. So the po the pro problem is and it is radical also because it stands in the tradition of of the American and especially the French Revolution. And after that, in a way, constitutions means a democratic constitution, a constitution that is that is um, uh, that depicts a horizontal association of citizens that can rule themselves through law and politics. So in this way, it is democratic. The constitution after, after that time is mainly democratic constitution. That's what, what we mean by democracy, demo, uh, constitution. The, the problem is, in a way, that that context has changed. What was important when, when we should declare ourselves as the independent nation and to rule ourselves. That changed pretty much after the Second World War. Then the situation was not how self-declared nations should rule themselves, but how they should avoid harming each other. And this gave rise to the historical, the unprecedented experiment of integration, the EU. States should not you know what nations are. They usually constitute themselves in opposition to others and when they are big enough and strong enough they go to war so how can we so this is the uh, the uh, the experiment that started in Europe that was established um, uh, to to uh, to uh, prevent that the things that happened in the in the tragedy of second world war should not happen again but what is also interesting here is that this is an experiment that also put up their own criteria for legitimacy. The EU put up its own criteria for legitimacy, even though it is not a state. And, and, uh, and it also underscores or underlines the same ideals of popular sovereignty and human rights as that were introduced in the American and the French constitution. And it is, in a way, the, the, the foundation of also the Norwegian constitution. So it is, we are, in a way, committed on the same value basis. The ideas, the Norwegian values that we used, that Norwegian used to talk about, they are not so very uh, uh, Norwegian, they are pretty European. So, so it, is, it is from Europe we have gotten the idea of this constitution and, this, and, and democracy and popular sovereignty and, and human rights. So, but what they have did, did what they, oh, the other states did, was to relinquish state sovereignty, to give up some of their power in order to to, uh, to establish a constitution that is um, that is uh, or, or to to, uh, to to establish this uh, this uh, um, organization that should could uh, uh, increase they could ensure peace and increase the capacity to act. But but the, but the point is then, what did they get back? These uh, these states that relinquished some of their sovereignty in order to achieve a a, a, a higher good peace and, and also 
better capacity to act. What did they achieve? Yeah, what they, what they did get back is this quote determination. They, they gave up some of their sovereignty and autonomy, but gave, uh, got a kind of uh, the right to co-determine co -determine the, the developments in Europe. These states have, have pooled and shared sovereignty between themselves and have gained co-determination of common matters in, in return. They have established a legal and political order, an internal market, and a common currency. And, and we know all these things about the, what the European Union had made possible. But it also made possible the, the largest market in the world. It is, it is 500 million inhabitants. And this is an enormous market. And this, and this market, and this political order, the Norwegian, responsible Norwegian politicians could not look away from in 1994. Despite that majority of no votes in the referendum in the Norwegian uh, EU membership in 1994, the, uh, the, uh, the um, uh, agreement on the European economic area was, uh, that has entered in force be, um, before was kept. So this is the most comprehensive ag agreement Norway has entered into. The EA agreement provides access for the EU uh, to the EU's internal market and it is it's continually upgraded and expanded. So a large number of issues are relevant to the free, uh, to the free movement of goods, service, labor, and, and uh, of, of uh, goods, services, labor, and capital. The number of EU legal acts have, have uh, grown uh, uh, at an exponential rate. So what I'm saying here is that even though the people said no, the responsible politicians could not could not afford to look away from, from the things that happened here in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in Brussels. So they had to get their foot into every, every door, door that, that it was possible to get, to get the foot into, as, as, as uh, uh, Brutland ordered her, uh, her uh, officials to do after the, uh, after, after the referendum in 1994. Go to Brussels and, and, and put your foot into every, every, every door and get into every meeting that you can get into in order to, to, to uphold and, and keep, uh, keep, uh, keep your provisions in interest. So, so but the, the situation has it, it changed a, a lot. It was in 1992, this was about 350, what is legal acts that was relevant, that were relevant for, 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 for Norway. Today it is about 6,000 and some will say much more. So the, the, the point is that the situation has changed dramatically and also that, that we thought that it was possible to go into an internal market and look, look away from the other uh, part of the integration process, that is, is uh, home affairs, justice and home affairs and, and foreign and security policy. That we could, uh, so, but because you know, all of us, or most of us, know, knows that after, after that, what with the Lisbon Treaty, this pillar structure has almost been abolished. It is something left there for the foreign and security policy, but, but things are being, uh, being uh, um, merged into the, uh, the, 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 first, the, the, the first pillar and is made subject uh, to the community method or, or code decision. So it is this EAA agreement that, that poses these, all these uh, problems for for uh, uh, possibilities for for uh, for uh, for Norway. But what is also interesting here that in addition to this EAA agreement is that there is a lot of parallel um, agreements that have come that have come about. We know about Schengen and we know about uh, Dublin and and there are a lot of others uh, other other um, uh, uh, agreements that the EU has that Norway has with the EU. 
Norway even puts top troops at the disposal of EU's battle troops. <coughs> so, and, and approximately three fourths of the legislation that applies to the uh, to the uh, to the member states also applies to, uh, to to Norway. So that's why I also say that we are in effect a member of other states. Also, the same regulations that apply to member states apply also in uh, in Norway to a very very large degree. So. The, and, and it is continually expanding. <coughs> but when considering the volume of the agreements and also the way that Norway is affiliated to the EU through the EAA agreement and the establishment of new EU authorities and agencies to which uh, Norway renounces sovereignty, we are not left with a clear impression of national independence and democracy. But we see the way that we are in subjected to a foreign uh, power at, as, it is, as, as it is seen in, in the system that we have established. We are struck by, 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 uh, by the catastrophe for democracy that this has, has, uh, has had. It is an economic success, but it is, it is, uh, when it comes to the, to, the, to, to the democratic aspects of this arrangement, it is, it is very, very difficult. The, and, and always, as, as I used to say, we, we, we know we, we, um, the democratic principle of no legislation without representation is, is breached. And we, we, we always uh, so, uh, saluting the Americans for what they did, but then made their constitution. But their constitution was in a way based on this, this thing about no taxation without representation. But in Norway, there is not only a lot of, you could call it taxation, but at least there is a, we pay a lot. And the other thing is also that we, that we, uh, we, take, we take all the legislation that comes from, uh, from this entity and, and, uh, and take it in. This is, um, I, I, sh I should not go into detail. We will perhaps hear more from, of this from, from others. But just two points about this, uh, this EAA agreement, which is very interesting because it is a dynamic framework. It is an agreement that needs not to be renegotiated each time the EU adopts new legal acts. Instead, the agreement is updated on a continual basis to ensure that legislation remains uniform with the entire EAA. So, and there is this homogeneity principle that has been in place, that the same rules apply to the EAA partners as to the EU. Uh, so it is not only that Norway has to incorporate all the EU regulations that are relevant, but to also to interpret them, to enforce them, and abide by them at the same way as the EU member states. And we could, uh, so there is, a, there is a, something with the procedure here that says that, um, that um, um, uh, uh, Norway in a way can this can be also upheld as a kind of international agreement. So in this way, no, you know, we, the, the constitution has not been overturned. overturned. Now, and uh, not formally, there is a lot of, of uh, we, we, we could discuss this in constitutional terms, but, but my point is not, it, does, it, it is not, uh, uh, this it is that the EU legislation in, 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 in practice take precedence over Norwegian law. It is, uh, it is uh, the EU cannot terminate the agreement or, uh, or, uh, or try to, uh, to, uh, to, to do something with it without geopoliticizing it, without uh, putting it at stake. It, it is a risky affair if Norway should try to oppose, oppose uh, what, is, what is coming. There is a kind of right to uh, reservation, as they call it, but it is uh, not being used and will not be used either, as far as I can see. The, 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 the sad situation is that Norway has moved themselves into this kind of integration trap. 
from which there is no, no, uh, no um, escape. The way out through membership is blocked because of the, pre the prevailing EU skepticism in, in Norway. If you see the, the, the polls, you, you will be, uh, not be surprised. So the EU is, uh, is, uh, is nearly demonized in the Norwegian public opinion, and there is no real debate about what is going on, and no political parties have put the, a new referendum on the agenda. It would take a huge effort to change uh, public opinion. And another, and another th uh, solution than a referendum is unthinkable. So this way out of the trap, by being a member of the union, is for at least in the foreseeable future closed. The other way out of it, the integration trap, it, that is the termination, termination of the EEA agreement and other agreements, it's also blocked. In theory, Norway could protect her sovereignty and democracy by leaving EAA and establishing a free trade agreement with the EU. As far as we can see, uh, Norway is blocked from obtaining a free agreement similar to, to Switzerland's. The EU has no interest in it and signals, signals that countries ought to join the EAA rather than people, uh, other countries should join the EAA, which is non-bureaucratic and it has little cost for, uh, for the EU. We will hear more about the Swiss, Swiss, Swiss example here. But, but so, and the other thing is, what I used to say, is also that um, Switzerland has, a, uh, has also a great number of agreements with the EU, and it seems like they have run into the same problems as also Norway does. So, so, so it, is, it is something uh, that is building, that's been built here that is, uh, um, it is not an international organization as many things. It think, thinks that EU is such a thing that you could just take out a little part of it and then join that and uh, uh, cherry picking, as it is called. The problem is that the EU is, 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 a, is not like the United Nations or NATO or USA or whatever. It is a, a kind of state-like organization that, has, that, that goes into nearly all the political areas of, a, of an ordinary state. And that means that it goes into everything. So, 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 it is not, so if you are into some of it, you are into much more of it than you, than you can, uh, can, can, uh, can think of. So, so that's why it is it's thinking of this as this kind of international agreements is, is, uh, is problematic. So what I have um, tried to... Um, to, to, to say now also is that the EU is a supranational unit that affects its member states and changes, changes their identity from being nation states into being states that pool sovereignty and share decision-making powers. It is an international contract, an international organization does not change the identity of their members. They remain the same after going into this. The EU members change. The, those who go into the EU change from being national states to being member states. And they, and they are then, and they, the whole system, and the whole system is, uh, is changed. The political system is changed, and their identity is, is changed. So, and what I'm trying to, to, uh, to do also in, in this chapter, I will stop now, but just one, one little thing more is this thing about, call it self harm. This is, in a way, uh, there is a kind of democratic self harm harm involved here. The, 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 but is the democratic chain of rule has been uh, um, harmed by our way of being member of the European Union. So, but, but the problem is that this is not, we can say a lot about, we, we know a lot about the impot uh, impotence of popular rule in the sense that all of, that, uh, 
that all are affected by internationalization and globalization and denationalization and these kind of things. What is, what is the peculiar example with Norway is that they have, they have committed this kind of harm to themselves by, 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 um, by, um, by uh, saying no to a kind of arrangement that could have isn't this, uh, this problem that, is, uh, that, that, that's, that states have that are affected by globalization or Europeanization. So that's why I, I use this term of, of, of self-harm when it comes to, to the democratic problems of Norway. We have made decisions that could have been different. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to uh, be here and to have the opportunity to um deliver a presentation on Norway's relationship. Uh, I'm focusing more on the um, representative uh, element and I'm trying to look more at the realities than I look at the formalities. You'll see this, I'll just quickly run through some of the things that obviously overlap with what Eric was saying. Um, but I think that it is quite obvious that the EEA structure papers over a deeply asymmetrical relationship with Norway being a rule taker basically. And the, and the point is that the reality, the, the, the facts on the ground are different from what the formality is, particularly because you have a two-pillar kind of system, but in reality, Norway is almost uh, subject to the precepts of, uh, of uh, direct effect in legal terms. So, so that means that the parliamentary uh, system of governing is very much programmed by external factors. And what is then interesting thinking about this also in a public sphere um, and democratic perspective is this paradox which the um, um, white paper on uh, Norway's relationship to the EU pointed out that the particular tension there between uh, on the one hand a very highly controversial issue that has been so controversial that it came up to referenda and then it was completely quiet in between the referenda debates so before 72, families were split up because the situation was so hostile. At the same time, we have had a turbo adaptation taking over so many of the rules at the same time. So it's really interesting that one of the most controversial issues has at the same time been dealt with in, in this way. And, and you don't find people demonstrating in the streets and uh, in uproar and so on in, in the particular constellations we have. So... Why is it so that, that there is such a big tension between, on the one hand, when the EU membership issue comes <coughs> up, and on the other hand, the de facto nature of the relationship? Because here there is a very dr dramatic tension. And what I think is, is that it, it, this is not a cultural argument. I think it's much more about how the political system operates. It, there have been arguments about Norwegians being so different. They are not. I mean, the margins were very small also in terms of yes and no on this. The, the, the real thing, I think, lies in the political party system and in the coalition politics and in the particular arrangements they make in order to take the membership issue off the agenda because then that they can keep on dealing with politics as usual, striking bargains and so on, and leave the, the uh, membership issue aside. The downside of this is that it also means that the basic issues of principle, what does this really mean for the constitution, for the kind of society we have, for Norway's role in Europe? These issues are basically left on the sideline. These are the fundamental constitutional issues that should have been debated. 
the thing is that this is so linked into the membership issue now that they can continue to have adaptation and, and, and live in Europe and, and, and prosper and yet at the same time avoid taking up the, the, the real um, uh, political fundamental issues. And this is a kind of ostrich politics, really. So, and some people would then say, okay, uh, well, but Norway can uh, affect this because it's a lobby nation. This is uh, something, of course, people from a delegation would be very familiar with because this is frequently depicted, that the delegation is one of the lobby agents. Fair enough, but then Norway would only be, and the government would only be one among a number of different lobbyists. But this denigrates the democratic constitutional nature of Norway's relationship to the EU and also of, of <coughs> the relationship between citizens and the Norwegian government because the Norwegian government is authorized by citizens to speak on their behalf. So simply saying that it is one lobbyist among others is really simply to say that, oh, anybody can be a lobbyist. Well, so can the Norwegian government. Well, but it is not like that because the relationship is much more structured. It's regally regulated where people and governments enter into, into rights and obligations and where the Norwegian government must implement decisions. So we cannot avoid the fact that, this is the, that we are subject to a representative system. We were talking about it's not lobbyism as such as a key element of denoting this kind of relationship. It's a system of representation. So, so it is a more structured, much more legally binding, and in that sense, if you want, constitutionalized type of arrangement that we must understand and analyze from a representative politics perspective. So let's look. Norway, of course, has representation in the EU. It's quite extensive especially in working groups under the uh, Commission, but also, of course, at the political level in the Council and, of course, in working groups. And also in the, uh, in the Norwegian Parliament also has uh, access to, even to the um, interparli interparliamentary networks that are working. But note that that's by invitation. It's nothing automatic about this in terms of interparliamentary. So Norwegian authorities have to approach the Cossack in order to get access to this. And then, of course, they do get access, but it's nothing automatic because you're not a member. So it's a different kind of, of, of uh, relationship. So, so the formality is quite different from the reality in this, in that um, it's about information and consultation and not about decision-making. So what we need to, to think about here is the case of representation without being politically represented. So how pragmatic is it? Now, many people say, and I think this applies to most of the, of, of the uh, decisions, that they are technical. So that, in that sense, they are about standardizing uh, operations anyway. And uh, yeah, some people can make a, a case of, of uh, curved cucumbers, you know, and stuff like this. But I mean, it, it, with the exception of British mo uh, metric martyrs and so on, these things are, are reasonably uncontroversial. So very much of what is coming in are decisions that are needed in order to, for modern political <coughs> systems to function. There's no need to, to be up in arms about this, and these will be in place anyway, and some of them even come via the international system and might be more odious. So, I mean, much of the, uh, of the substance, what people will say, are technical issues and so on that are necessary to operate in the modern world. And, of course... Um, Norway has access and is formally independent. And then some people also say, and even the uh, white paper was saying that there's, uh, it can balance the, the, uh, the, the there's a trade-off here between uh, being represented and having access to, to decision-making power. So 
So that's the it's kind of a balance, you know. You strike a compromise on this. This is how it's normally depicted. The problem is that from a democratic perspective, you can't really strike a compromise in terms of representation or presence. If you don't have one, if you don't have politically elected representatives, you don't have one of the pillars that you would possibly have been striking a compromise on. So if one of the part of the equation is missing, the uh, equation is zero. So on, on the democratic side, there is nothing to ameliorate that type of, uh, of factor. So um, what then marks Norway's representative relation? And again, to reiterate, we're talking about representation without politically elected representatives. And the, the standard term that we then will get to is the idea of virtual representation that Edmund Burke was framing in 1792. <coughs> this is after, of course, the um, French and the American revolutions. And it is, it's what you have, for instance, now with people who don't have voting rights. Children are virtually represented by, in, in the political system. For a very long time, women also were virtually represented. And when you are subject to legislation without actually having a say in the making of legislation, well, you can claim that, or some people can claim that you are virtually represented, and then you have to see whether there is a correspondence between the decisions and your interests. But you have no way of making clear through your vote, through your political act, uh, to, to make sure that there is a correspondence. So one can say that there is a, a correspondence in, in interest. It could be. But what is the mechanism to ensure this? So the point is that it's a pre-democratic, paternalistic, and colonial form of representation. And this is exactly what the American colonists were rejecting. And note that Burke himself, when assessing the uh, American colonists, he, he agreed with them that they were not being properly represented by the British Parliament. And of course, the um, American uh, uh, constitutional experience informed the Norwegian constitutional experience. And if we are now back to a situation of virtual representation, then one can start discussing, are we then back to before 1814, before the Norwegian constitution entrenched the idea of, of self, popular self-government. But the, this will be to denigrate the fact that the Norwegian government is, of course, making efforts and has been doing so all the time. It's not so that this is a passive relationship, because there are certainly efforts. And there was a lot of talk in the early 90s especially, uh, but to some extent later on, also um, on the part of Norwegian um, government to get uh, Nordic neighbours and so on to actively speak Norway's vo voice in the EU. This was one of the uh, ways of dealing with this. And I have some cases also of people expressing that they are um, surrogate representatives. And this is the, uh, when you are in a different constituency, somebody can speak on your behalf. And, of course, you can have active efforts on, on behalf of somebody to solicit somebody as a surrogate representative. Um, so this is perfectly possible. Now, the catch is, of course, that one is dependent. And I think the, um, the really important element in this is that e-representatives, wherever they come from, would appear to have small incentives, limited incentives, to promote Norway's interests because Norwegians have decided to, to have this relationship. I think it would have been different 
if they were feeling that there was no option for the Norwegians. But the fact that this is a voluntary act to have this kind of relationship, why should they feel any kind of compunction? I mean, they can say, well, Norwegians can simply change their status. So why should we go out of our way to represent them unless, unless they uh, make particular efforts and so on? So there is the very relationship. It provides them with disincentives for speaking uh, Norway's voice more than anything else. So the, uh, the catch, of course, is we can say that, and now I'm getting into the deeper issue on sovereignty, we can, we can say that it would work if you decide not to be politically represented as long as you can control those issue areas that we have decided not to be politically represented in <coughs> and that we can determine the rules and conditions under which we decide. So those are two obvious uh, democratic conditions for this. In the EU, as also Eric was saying, is the, the co-decision framework is one where more, more decisions and issues are being lifted and be dealt with in, in common. And insofar as this system of making decisions in common also has an implication on not only on what states do in common, but also on what each individual state does on its own, insofar as the terms of self-governing are also decided in common fora, then it matters even more, even in a constitutional sense, to be part of these types of deliberations and in these types of fora. So it means that the idea, the standard idea we have of state sovereignty as self-governing is modified by the system of multi-level constitutionalism that we see developing in the EU. And that means that the standard idea of self-governing is not a good yardstick for actual autonomy. And it is much more of a formality of the standard idea of sovereignty than it actually depicts the, the reality. So this is, I think, one of the constitutional conundrums for Norway, that not being present in the fora where also the terms under which Norwegian self-governing are being more and more influenced means that it loses out both on co-decision and on self-decision. Thank you. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I will talk about something quite plain. I will talk about citizenship. Um, oh, sorry. More, con more concretely, I will try to say something about how Norway's status as a political outsider and economic insider, as we have been uh, hearing about, has affected Norwegian citizenship in the 20 years after the EEA agreement was uh, signed and consented upon. So in short, what kind of citizenship institution do we have now in Norway as an effect of 20 years of integration with the common market? So, um, the project that the book uh, that we're talking about today uh, was, was based on was a kind of, it had a constitutional outlook, so to say. So, citizenship then is, broadly speaking, uh, a membership status of a state which is regulated through a democratic constitution. Okay? And in this sense, the authors... Now, citizens are always supposed to be the authors of the laws that they are subjected to and that regulate their lives, their political life, their private life, their economic life, 
and so on. So through um, this type of democratic constitutional uh, system, we can say that citizens have, on the one hand, public autonomy, and on the other hand, private autonomy. Public autonomy designates rights to do something in the community, so to say, most notably political rights. Private autonomy designates, in many ways, the private room you have as a citizen, as well as certain economic rights and so on, but most notably uh, civil rights. Okay? So citizenship is basically made up of two autonomies, public and private. And through these two uh, autonomies, we exhibit our freedom, in a sense. We use our freedom uh, politically. And uh, in my chapter, uh, in the book uh, that we call The Norway Paradox uh, in English, The Norske Paradox, I use this uh, kind of conceptualization as a starting point, uh, then to try and chart kind of the Europeanization of citizenship uh, since uh, 1992. So, Norway as an, an outsider and citizenship. What is there really to say? Some would argue, not so much. Why? Because Norway became a member of the EEA through democratic procedures, right? So, in that sense, Norwegian citizens have um, consented through their elected representatives to becoming part of the system in the Storting. But, is that really the end of the story in terms of citizenship as a public and private autonomous uh, institution and status? To my mind, clearly not. There are three main reasons for this. First, the EU that the EU EEA formed, or was formed on 20 years ago, is not the same as today. We all know this, right? Uh, the EU has both deepened and widened in this wide room. It makes sense to talk about widening. Um, substantially, in terms of enlargement, treaty changes, treaty reforms, constitutional debates, so on and so forth. Second, through that deepening, EU citizens have, we can say, a broadened set of rights. Free movement has be become uh, more fundamental in the last 20 years. Political rights have been um, uh, more important. Uh, and third, a third reason for this uh, problem is that Norwegian citizens have many more economic rights as Europeans since the EA agreement. But they of course have no additional political rights. So what I did in my chapter, I did a, a kind of small comparison with uh, Sweden and Denmark. So kind of intra-Scandinavian comparison. As Sweden and Denmark and Norway are relatively similar countries. I thought that would be interesting. Um, and Denmark, as we all know, has, as you all know, of course, has the famous opt-out from EU citizenship after the Maastricht uh, Treaty. But still, is a very active 
has a very active parliament in EU affairs. It has an active plenary and an active European Affairs Committee. And they have, in a sense, had vibrant debates about citizenship, about rights, about enlargement, and all these things that have had an effect on the EEA agreement, and thus also uh, on Norway. And the folky thing is, uh, as I said, and, and it can be added, uh, is perhaps um, the EU's most active national parliament. So despite saying no to EU citizenship, in many ways no to the, the main thrust of the Maastricht Agreement, Denmark has had an active EU policy since 92. Sweden, on the other hand, less active, implemented the full acquis in 95. The Riksdag is less active, but of course Swedes have political rights, they can participate in the European parliamentary elections and so on. So, what about Norway? We have certain rights through uh, the EEA, and our parliament transposes on a daily basis EU law. Every day. Yet as citizens, uh, we of course have no uh, political leverage, so to say, in EU decisions. So the paradox then. The no to the EU in 94 was strongly politicized. For those of you old enough to remember the, uh, the membership debates, and some of us remember, this was my first election that I participated in, so I, I remember this uh, vividly. Debates were very heated. There was a strong mobilization across the political spectrum. It was not only a, a mobilization on the no side, there was also a mobilization on the yes side. This was an important issue uh, for the Norwegian uh, citizenry. And then the, the, no, the no, in a sense, gave a definite answer on membership, one could argue. Yet, as Kåre Willock uh, said, the no side won in 1994, but has lost every day since then. So, Norway is strongly integrated in the project of European integration, and thus we, as citizens, are also strongly integrated. And I think that is actually something that is seldom uh, taken up in the debates uh, on the European Union in Norway. They tend to become more about power politics and uh, bureaucratic politics and so on. So in this sense then I, I argue that in my chapter that Norwegian citizens have since 94 become more of economic than political men. Homo economicus more than homo politicus. Okay? So with this development, um, the development of the EU, the dynamic evolution of the EA, and this outsider-insider status of Norway, we are in fact witnessing a creeping depoliticization of Norwegian citizenship, which is difficult to get out of, but this is, I think, the fact and something that we have to uh, continue to debate uh, in the coming years. Thank you.
Uh, I will, as the title indicates, talk about uh, Norway's relations to the EU's foreign and security policy. Uh, this dimension of uh, the European Union is often criticized. It's uh, said that it's inefficient, it's incoherent, the European Union is not able to pull its weight in global politics. In situations of crisis, member states cannot agree on what to do, and if they agree, they rely on the United States <laughs> to do what they want to do. But uh, the EU's foreign and security policy uh, also has its followers, and perhaps paradoxically, given uh, the outcome of the two referendums in Norway, Norway is such a loyal follower of the EU's common foreign and security policy. Sure, uh, skepticism of the kind uh, just mentioned is also evident in the discourse of Norwegian foreign policy makers when they talk about EU foreign policy. Uh, and for many years one might have said that Norwegian governments were closet followers of the EU being heavily skeptical in public, both as to uh, the desirability of a common EU foreign policy and of uh, the ability of the European Union to actually get it act together and to make this common uh, policy. But at the same time, at every twist and turn, at every move made by the European Union in, direction, in the direction of more cooperation, more integration and more institutions in the domain of EU foreign policy, Norwegian policymakers have been there knocking on doors, scouting in the corridors, trying to get a foot on the inside. As a result, uh, Norwegian authorities do participate on Norwegian Norway uh, does participate in much of what the EU does in the domain of foreign and security policy. It subscribes to uh, most of the EU's foreign policy declarations, it uh, takes part in joint decisions. Uh, Ukraine is an example of how uh, the, uh, the Norwegian authorities follow very closely exactly the kinds of policies that the EU makes. Norway is part of one of the EU battle groups. Uh, it buys into many of the projects of the European Defence Agency. It has a cooperation agreement with the Defence Agency. And it participates in a number of the EU's crisis management operations. Uh, now, these, this kind of participation is enshrined in a variety of different formal agreements that go under various headings from international treaties to administrative agreements between the Norwegian government and the European Union. At the same time, we know that a majority of the Norwegian population twice voted no to Norwegian membership in the Union, and that the idea that Norway was a different kind of foreign policy actor, more interested in peace and international cooperation than those uh, great powers at the European continent, as it was said in the public debate, um, that these arguments were also important in the discussions about Norwegian membership in the European Union. So in line of this, uh, I think it would be worth asking whether or not 
uh, it should be seen as, pr as problematic from a democratic perspective that Norwegian authorities are such loyal followers of the EU's foreign and security policy. To be sure, we are often more concerned with action capacity, uh, the ability the, the executive's ability to act and to make effective decisions in foreign policy rather than with uh, democracy. However, even in foreign and security policies, executives cannot do exactly as they please. Uh, and the key democratic principle that citizens should be authors of the laws that they are expected to abide by also holds as a bottom line in foreign and security policy. So what I have done in my book chapter, in this book that has now been mentioned several times, is to examine how these two priorities of the action capacity of the executive and of democracy are balanced in Norwegian foreign policy in general and whether this balance comes out differently <coughs> when Norway makes policy towards the European Union in the domain of foreign and security policy. So, I can only present the bare bones of, of that analysis here. Firstly, uh, if we look at the balance between democracy and action capacity in Norwegian foreign and security policy in general, it is quite clear that compared to domestic politics, the capacity of action of the executive has priority. Foreign and security policy is an executive prerogative, and there are also a number of consensus-making mechanisms at work in the relations between the executive and the parliament in order to ensure that the executive can actually act efficiently. Uh, for example, much of foreign policy in the parliament is dealt with in the so-called Utvidede um, Utenriks- or Forsvarskomitee, which is a parliamentary committee for discussing matters of foreign policy, security and defence, uh, which, uh, which discusses its issues in secret, and uh, the, um, uh, the minutes of discussions are only made public after 30 years. At the same time, the Norwegian Parliament should um, agree to all uh, major international treaties. So all international treaties that are considered to be important are to be agreed upon and scrutinized in the open Parliament, so outside this committee. In addition, uh, so there is some uh, leeway for the, for the Norwegian Parliament. And, but one should add, the Parliament as well subscribes in the way it behaves uh, to this idea that action capacity is important in foreign policy. In fact, there is a kind of assumption that all Norwegian foreign policy actually rests on a consensus. But when we look at relations with the European Union, we know that there is no such consensus. This is a contested issue in Norwegian politics. Does this mean then that uh, there is more contestation, more demands for justification, more public debate in Parliament on this issue than on other foreign policy issues? That's the next question. 
the short answer to that is no. On the contrary, the Norwegian Parliament appears to have been even more reluctant than what it is on other foreign and security policy issues to actually discuss, scrutinize, and question, and to use those powers that it does actually ha have to get these issues uh, debated. The executive has not either presented the agreements made between Norway and the EU in the domain of foreign and security policy in accordance with the treaties, uh, in, in accordance with the procedures that are relevant for international treaties. Not even the Norwegian agreement to be part of one of the EU battle groups were presented according to this kind of uh, procedure. It was debated in Parliament at the request of certain parliamentarians. The government first presented it to the closed parliamentary committee. Some parliamentarians then protested and it was debated openly. But it did not follow the formal procedures uh, enshrined in the Constitution for debating and scrutinizing international treaties. As for the other agreements, these have simply been passed without any parliamentary uh, scrutinization. Now, one might say that this is constitutionally or legally unproblematic because these agreements that Norway has uh, with the EU in the domain of foreign and security policy uh, are not, uh, do not bind Norway in the same way as the EEA agreement uh, does. Basically, they give Norway the possibility to participate by invitation in the activities of the EU in the area of foreign and security policy. But at the same time, these agreements are systematically described by Norwegian authorities as crucial to Norwegian interests. So these are a kind of Agreements that have an ambiguous status, they may be legally insignificant, but politically they are described as highly significant. So if the parliament wanted to raise debates, there was certainly nothing to stop them from doing so. Now, the balance has tipped then in favor of action cap capacity rather than democracy. But there might still be good reasons from, the, from a principal perspective uh, in order to, to do this. And uh, I will discuss or point to three such reasons that one must at least consider. Firstly, uh, this, and it's often described as um, simply a continuation of uh, Norway's policy with NATO. So it's part of the alliance policy of Norway in security uh, policy. Almost all of Norway's <coughs> allies in NATO are members of the European Union. So uh, this policy towards the EU in this domain could simply be a continuation of this policy. So perhaps no need to debate it. Norwegian NATO membership is strongly enshrined in Norwegian politics and agreed upon in Parliament. What's more, many of the discussions on European security that previously took place within the framework of NATO are now moved to 
the framework of the European Union. So all the more reason, perhaps, to consider this simply as a continuation of established Europe Norwegian security policy. The problem with this kind of inter interpretation is that uh, the EU is not the European arm of NATO. EU foreign policy is not the same as NATO policy. This is so even if the CFSP is the intergovernmental branch of the European Union. Foreign policy within the European Union is established with reference to the values and interests of the Union. It's something different also then from the individual foreign policy of the member states. And membership in the European Union transforms uh, the foreign policies of the member states as well as the relations that they have with third parties. So it's, it's far too simplistic to conclude that this is merely a continuation of Norway's relationship with NATO. Another problem with this interpretation is uh, that the conditions for participation within the European Union are of course very different from those within NATO. When Norway participates in EU policies in foreign and security policy, it does so after all decisions have been made. So it participates in executing decisions, but it can neither influence what should be done, when it should be done, and how it should be done. Obviously, participation is voluntary, but given that it is so systematic and enshrined in the habits of Norwegian foreign policy, uh, it is still um, slightly problematic. So, could the fact that, this is, uh, that there is so little scrutiny and so little debate have something to do with the particular needs of foreign and security policy? To be sure, there is a certain need for secrecy and for rapid decision-making in this particular domain. But again, it's difficult to see that there was a huge need for secrecy, that secrets of allied states would be reveal, revealed, for example, if these uh, agreements were scrutinized in more detail. Or, uh, and it's also difficult to see that consideration of speed or a need for rapid decision-making would have been particularly important. Thirdly, one could still say, well, if there has been no debate, it must mean there is a consensus. The problem with this is that we usually expect in a democracy that consensus should be the result of an open uh, debate. And here, what we have basically is silence. So that raises the question at least of what kind of consensus we are facing in this case. And this is uh, particular re particularly relevant to ask, given the many consensus-shaping mechanisms that are in place in relations between Parliament and the Executive. Also, one might say that there is a double edge to this consensus talk in Norwegian foreign policy, in the sense that uh, reference to consensus is often used to silence or constrain debate, 
while it is, uh, and the argument then is that consensus is necessary in order to secure Norwegian interests globally. So critique would weaken the authority of the Norwegian government in the face, in, 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 uh, in the, with relation to, to third states. At the same time, consensus is described as a reason to demonstrate that policy has legitimacy. So it has a fairly ambiguous status. So having said all this, it's difficult to find principal reason for the absence of debate in Norway's affiliation to foreign and security policy. That doesn't mean it isn't easy to understand why Norwegian authorities pursue this policy of close affiliation with the European Union in this domain. And I will suggest before concluding two main reasons. The first has to do exactly with action capacity again. Um, this policy may be understood as an effort to compensate for the loss of influence, the loss of access to information that actually results from the emergence of a common European foreign and security policy. And I would imagine this is a loss which is clearly felt by Norway in particular because it is a NATO member. And as the European Union develops and strengthens its own uh, foreign and security policy, the institutional borders of European security are redrawn. Uh, Norwegian uh, authorities find themselves outside all those decision-making mechanisms that it was uh, previously inside. Now, this effort at compensation are only partly effective, precisely because the European Union maintains this uh, clear distinction between member states and non-members in foreign and security policy. And obviously, foreign policy makers know this very well. So uh, another reason that one might promote in order to explain why Norwegian foreign policy uh, goes on in, in this particular way is recognition. From a, an EU perspective, Norway is one of them. Norway is a non-member. Norway is a third party to EU foreign policy. Um, and Norway is this much more so in the domain of foreign and security policy than what it is in the other aspects of the European Union, when, where, after all, it does have the EEA agreement. This collides, I would suggest, with the uh, foreign policy identity of Norway. Norway may, may, uh, Norwegian policy may thus be seen as an effort to become recognized as one of us and not being one of them. It may be seen as an effort to be, after all, despite all the formalities of membership, part of the club. And it uses all means available to achieve this recognition. And I would even add that perhaps it succeeds better in terms of compensating for the us and them issue, the identity issue, by these kinds of policies than what it does in terms of compensating for the loss of action capacity. Thank you.